One of the biggest barriers for utilization are, frankly, the regulations, and not because the regulations prevent use of technology, but because misinterpretations of those regulations are viewed as inhibiting how it can be utilized. I'm very pleased to be speaking with my friend Matt Fisher today. I'm always impressed by his ability to juggle so many things. Aside from being a family man, he's general counsel for Carium, a telehealth platform company. Prior to joining Carium, Matt practiced for over a dozen years at a mid-sized law firm where he advised clients across the healthcare spectrum on healthcare laws and regulations. Since 2016, he's hosted a Healthcare Now podcast called Healthcare Du Jour and is extremely active with HIMSS, the Health Information and Management Systems Society, and the American Bar Association. He's an active blogger and always has his pulse on the latest news. Matt, you're on the other side of the microphone now, and people say, oh, podcasts came back, but they never left. So they just got more popular again for some reason or another. I'm curious, what was the motivation for you to start one in 2016? It wasn't actually my initial idea. It was um, you know, Carol and Roberta, who run Healthcare Now Radio, also have a series of websites that they run that at that time, it was primarily focused on health IT. Uh, so I'd actually been a contributing writer to their websites. And then I would say probably in about the December 2015 timeframe, they approached me with the idea of doing the podcast because you know, one of the primary reasons was to expand beyond just the, the health IT focus, which is where I get the benefit of what I do on my show, which is really just talking about any hot or interesting topic within healthcare. You know, just kind of given my more general background, they gave me that opportunity to help them expand what they were looking at. So, you know, we did start off with, I think, a relatively heavy health IT focus uh, because, as I said, with the planning in December of 2015, we then used the next couple months to frame out what we thought the premise of the show would be. And then all three of us happened to be at HIMSS in 2016, uh, which was my first time at that conference. But we used the, you know, the opportunity to start talking with people and lining up the interviews. And luckily enough, people said yes. You know, and, and that's really how it got off and running. I always like to say to people, I just get to have all the fun and I don't have to do any of the work because you know, at this point in time to keep it going, all I'm doing is finding the guests, setting up the recordings, and then the recordings go off into the cloud. All the editing is done for me. All the posting is done for me. So really the only work, and I don't view it as work, is getting to chat with the guests. And I think, Davida, you probably well know that's by far the most fun part because you, know, you always end up with some very interesting conversations and being able to explore topics that you probably didn't necessarily expect when, even when you set up the recording. I agree. I love just going out there and find interesting people trying to make a tie with communications. And most of the time it can happen that way, but gosh, the, the world's our oyster. <laughs> really, it's the sky's the limit. Any topics or people stand out? I think it is kind of difficult to pick out any that stick out of my mind, but I would say I've also had a couple of repeat guests and I've only done that a couple of times. So I would say those people definitely stand out. So like Nico Skavaski from Redox, uh, Lucia Savage, who I actually had on twice when she was still with ONC. Uh, so before she ended up at Omada Health, where she is now, love talking with both of them. I, I always have that great intention of saying I'll have someone come back, but then there are just so many people to talk to. 
But I'd say the other benefit is, you know, once once I've had a conversation with someone, and oftentimes a podcast can be the way to have that initial conversation, just end up staying in touch with people. I'd like to take a step back and ask about your background in law and then how healthcare snuck in. I think both of them were fairly inadvertent. You know, so when I applied for law school, it was actually with the intention of doing legislative work and working for a member of a legislature. Ideally, that would have been Congress, since I happen to be living in DC the year that I applied. And when I, before applying, I remember talking with different staffers up on the Hill, because I'd been up there at the time and was asking, you know, if I wanted to be the person actually drafting laws, is it better to have a law degree or a master's of public policy? And everyone said law degree. So that, that kind of helped make that decision. And then, you know, as life happens, after my second year of law school, as you know, a lot of law students do, I got a clerkship at the law firm where I worked at up until earlier this year. And after the clerkship was like, oh, I like kind of like working in a law firm. Ended up going there. And then getting into healthcare was, again, just a very happy accident. So it was, you know, the firm had just started representing a big healthcare client right before I started and didn't necessarily have anyone else at the, or really anyone at the firm that had a solid regulatory background. So just got to field a lot of assignments since I was a fresh-faced associate and you're not going to say no to any work that's handed to you, especially in the fall of 2008, which is when I started because it's... I think the economy died about right around my start date. Uh, so it felt very lucky to still be working somewhere. You know, kind of started with that initial work and just started reading more, researching more, and then eventually started getting to attend conferences and get, get involved with HIMS and then also the health law section at the American Bar Association. Actually, early on, I also did a lot with the American Health Lawyers Association. Being able to meet folks from all across the industry through you know those volunteer opportunities just helped make it easier to practice the way I was. And it's as my interest kept increasing, then pretty much doubled down in terms of saying this is the area of law that I'm going to be practicing in. Talk a little bit about Carium. And I think you're other than general counsel, it's my understanding you you have a few other roles slipped in there just because you're that kind of guy that likes to learn and be a part of a lot of different aspects of the company. Part of startup life is, as you said, get to fill a number of different hats. Um, and it's really just pitch in whenever and wherever is needed. We describe ourselves as a virtual care platform. So we're very much focused on enhancing the relationship and engagement between care team members and patients. We find that when our clients implement our platform, you know, once they get patients onto it, the patients stay engaged. We have a high month-to-month user engagement rate. And then that allows better interaction by pushing information, pulling data from wearable devices or other connected devices that the patients might use to feed data to the care team so they can be able to see what's happening in your, really in your daily life. Because a lot of it is various forms of remote monitoring, whether it's remote patient monitoring, chronic care management, hospital home, like anything where you're trying to work with the patients in their daily lives and in their homes. Seeing all that data come in, the care team is able to either push you know, educational information or have an intervention sometimes. You know, some of our clients have told us, you know, just seeing what's coming in, they're able to affirmatively reach out and say, hey, we see this trend is not going in the right direction, make this change to what you're doing. And then they're able to prevent either you know, the patient having to go to the emergency room or given preferences during COVID, avoid having an in-office visit because it's something that could be addressed through a very quick 
telehealth visit. We're very happy that we're able to help enhance that type of relationship and produce some great outcomes that our clients are reporting to us with their patients. We also fit into so many different use case categories because it's like we're not targeted to one particular type of care or episode of care. It's, you know, our clients really tell us how they want to implement us and our platform is so scalable or flexible that, you know, the core of that engagement works in any type of scenario where they apply the evidence basis that they're looking to utilize. And then the other thing that I find is it's, you know, because we focus on providing just the, the software and the technology piece, we're not interfering with that existing relationship between the care team and the patients. We're, you know, as we say, we're enhancing it and we're making it, making the connection even deeper. So we're not interfering by introducing our own care team. We have partners that if someone does need that because they don't have, you know, the a sufficient amount of resources, we can provide it. And we really like to hear about the, the enhancement of that type of relationship. Healthcare overall is just undergoing so much flux and change right now that it's great to be a part of it and great to be helping to drive better outcomes in so many different settings. What Carib's doing might not have been possible as strongly before COVID. That brings me to what you're going to be speaking about at HIMSS in August in Vegas. You're talking about patient access, which is a topic I'm really interested in as well. And give a little preview of the presentation. Yeah. No, so as you said, it's you know, talking about patient access. So it's coming at it from two primary directions, you know, one being HIPAA, which has had the longstanding right of access for individuals. And there's, you know, hopefully a well-known push from the Office for Civil Rights, and that's the Office for Civil Rights within the Department of Health and Human Services on the federal level, since it's that office that has enforcement and oversight responsibilities for HIPAA. I think they're up to 19 settlements as of June 2021 around right of access, and that and all those settlements are in a period of just a couple of years uh, since the right of access had really received honest to say, absolutely no attention from the enforcement perspective. There is probably technical guidance provided in the background, but there were no monetary penalties that had been imposed. You know, so talking about right of access, hopefully trying to dispel some of the myths around how right of access actually operates. There are many times where requirements are imposed by organizations that aren't necessarily called for under the HIPAA regulations. One of the ones, and this is you know something I would tell my former colleagues in the law firm a lot, is most organizations are going to say you need to submit the request on that organization's particular form, just because they probably then know what to look for. But you know HIPAA doesn't say that. HIPAA just lays out the elements that need to be included in a form, and theoretically, an individual could draft up something themselves, and as long as it had all the right requirements, the organization should be respecting that. And then, kind of along with that the new 21st Century Cures Act regulations that went into effect in early April 2021. So far, the folks that I've talked to in systems haven't had too much experience with it, just because I think there hasn't necessarily been enough time or things maybe are bubbling up to the people that I'm talking to. Trying to talk about the opportunities that might exist with API access and also implement or enforcement of the information blocking regulations, which is really to say that you're trying to remove ways that you can block access to information. How that is going to work in concert with HIPAA, because you know, I think some of the biggest concerns around those new regs, are you going to have kind of cross purposes or you know, what do you do with the exceptions to information blocking? Because there's still exceptions to comply with other privacy laws or regulations or other security laws or regulations. Ultimately, the, the 
primary message that I'm hoping to impart is the opportunity for collaboration and the ways that respecting a right of access is really a great way to drive better relationships between patients and care team members. You know, I think that'll probably result in some discussion around open notes. There have been a few articles I've seen over the past couple of months emphasizing that when open note or the open notes program is followed, which is to say, you know, you give free open access to the, the medical record and the notes that are contained, patients can help identify things because, you know, everyone makes mistakes in what's being documented. And also just seeing that information can change the patient's perspective on things because it's sometimes seeing it starkly written drives a message home in a different way than having a discussion around it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the Open Notes organization has produced a lot of good outcomes research around the benefits. You know, but again, it's, as I said, it all comes back to trying to find ways to encourage everyone to respect these different rights and to really find a way to move forward working together. Can HIPAA and the Cures Act coexist or is it time to rewrite HIPAA? Yeah, no, they definitely coexist because mm -hmm. it's, when you're thinking about them from the HIPAA perspective, and I was actually talking with someone who's like developing a startup idea earlier and explaining how HIPAA operates, it's you know HIPAA really allows for information to to go to a lot of different places. It really enables information to be used to support really common sense business operations within healthcare. So it's it is not a barrier for information to be flowing between clinicians at hospital A and hospital B if they're both involved in the care of the patient. You know, I think if there's concern about any conflict, the real conflict would be between the federal regs, so HIPAA and 21st century cures regs, and state law, because the federal laws can set the outer boundaries and then the states can contract within that. They can't Go, they can't contradict what the federal laws are saying, but they can impose more stringent requirements, which is often the case. And I think a lot of times when HIPAA is used as the reason not to pro provide information, it's not actually that HIPAA is preventing it, it would be state law. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and I think some good examples of that are like around HIV or AIDS data or um, psychiatry records or STD testing. I'm not sure how many people might have done it, but if you ever ask your physician's office for a copy of your medical records. In most states, you're going to have to check a specific box for those and a few other categories. And that's driven not because of HIPAA, but because of other regulations that impose special privacy protections around those different categories of information, because those are seen as more sensitive, potentially stigmatized points of data that regulators or legislators wanted to make sure weren't exposed or released without special consideration. I, I also fully appreciate that that requires an understanding of a lot of different sets of rules and regulations, and it introduces a lot of nuance, which is why I think it's also helpful to make sure that organizations don't try and do things by themselves, make sure that they have all viewpoints represented when making decisions or setting up policies and procedures. So that way it can all be hopefully done appropriately. And then it also kind of goes back to just education and awareness. You know, if, if people aren't instructed on how the law actually operates or aren't provide that opportunity to read about it, then it's really hard to expect that they're going to be able to get it right. That's a really good point. I'm in Massachusetts, but insurance is based in California. Is there an impact there? Does that cause a problem? If you're talking about like different components of the healthcare system being located in different states, most likely not. 
let's just use the example that you gave, you know, that, you know, say you live in Massachusetts and you go to a physician office or hospital in Massachusetts, but your insurer is based in California. You and I, as the individuals, we probably have absolutely no clue and insight into the data that's being shared between the actual care delivery organization and the insurance company. Because again, HIPAA allows all that to be shared. There you'd be looking mostly at the payment piece of the privacy regulation, which allows information to be shared or used and disclosed technically without patient consent or even awareness to ensure that you can actually be paid. So if you had to seek consent for that, you'd have a complete breakdown of the system and either you'd be required to sign something that you wouldn't actually understand and you'd just be told sign this when you check in or you're not going to get services probably, or it would just gum everything up. So it's, you know, it kind of goes back to the point that I made of HIPAA is very commonsensical in my view, at least in terms of what it allows for normal business operations. And then, or say you go to a hospital in Massachusetts normally, but maybe you're on vacation up in Maine or New Hampshire, and you have to go visit a facility up there because something happens. You can direct that the information be sent to your primary place of treatment. Then when you go back home, if you went and saw your physician, they could call and request it because that would be related to treatment and the information should be shared. You know, I think it's more from the perspective of the difficulties going back to how technological limitations have been established or implemented, because there hasn't necessarily been a business case to drive ensuring that information is appropriately shared and distributed across all the different organizations. Instead, historically, if you're looking in like a fee-for-service kind of mode, which is how healthcare has been established and run for you know probably all of our lives uh, except for recently there there is more of an incentive to create silos and to jealously hold on to your patient population because if you're not providing a service you're not going to get paid you know as we keep shifting more and more into value-based care i think there you have the stronger business case to drive interoperability because if you're not sharing information and not effectively and efficiently delivering care then you're going to start losing money when you have that kind of financial incentive and financial backing behind it, that's when I think you can actually have more behavioral changes that people will want to pursue and that will force to have put into place too. I think that's a great segue to the tech side of it. What's driving you nuts? Is it the fact that we've been talking about interoperability for a decade and it's really not happening? Is industry moving too fast for the tech to keep up with it or vice versa? Is the tech trying to advance too fast for the industry? Who has to keep up with who? And are we solving these problems in the right way with technology? I don't necessarily, I guess, optimistically think that there's an issue of one not keeping pace with the other or not being able to keep pace with the other if they'd want to. Because all of a sudden with COVID, everything shut down. And then within weeks, you had this tremendous shift to delivering care remotely using all these digital tools. And it was done effectively. I'm not going to, I certainly don't want to create an impression, would never say that that's an argument to say everything should shift virtually. I think you have to find that right continuum because there is, you know, certain things have to occur in person. But I think you can now, hopefully we can get closer to the stage where we're going to just call it all healthcare. We're going to figure out what's the right modality of delivering healthcare in the right instance. But then I think it comes back to, you have to look for good partners. The organizations appropriately should do diligence on the technology solutions that they're trying to implement to understand how it how it operates and make sure that all the right protections are in place. But I think one of the biggest barriers for utilization are 
frankly, the regulations and not because the regulations prevent the appropriate use of technology, but because misinterpretations of those regulations are viewed as preventing that use or inhibiting how it can be utilized. That kind of goes back to HIPAA as everyone's favorite whipping post of saying, oh, well, it's HIPAA, I can't do this or I can't do that. Whereas, you know, once you start talking around what, well, what do you actually want to do and what are you trying to achieve? You can pretty much figure out very quickly that no, HIPAA is not going to stop you from doing it. It's just the lack of understanding and lack of awareness. And then I think the other aspect where the regulations have created, I'll call it a negative impact, is just trying to develop to that regulatory standard and trying to check a box. You know, I think that was for a long time, the big complaint about the meaningful use program, which was we just want to hit the bare minimum necessary so we can get all the federal money without thinking about, is this the best way that we could be designing an electronic health record or a system that's going to be put into place? You know, so I think it's kind of that running to the bottom line as opposed to trying to think of how can we truly innovate or truly develop a a really good product or a really good integration that is going to make lives easier for everybody. Because I don't, I think that's the piece that we haven't gotten to yet. And it seems like the system is starting to shift in that direction, but it's come with a lot of pain and tears because of that, that arguably wasn't really necessary. I think that brings up a great point in that checking the boxes was really what was for survival back when Meaningful Use started and hospitals and healthcare systems were trying to keep up with the regulations that were trying to improve things. But I think what what I'm seeing now, and a good example is our friend Jonathan Bush and his new company, Zeus, now that we have the foundation in place people can start to build the system the way we want. And I think he's a smart man who's been in the industry for a long time, had an EHR company in Athena Health. He has the luxury, maybe, of looking at it from a real 360 point of view and saying, really, what is the need here? Kevin O'Leary's newsletter posed a couple of questions regarding Bush's new foray into with Zeus. And one of them was, if the back end of tech-enabled care delivery startups can be abstracted away to a single platform like Zeus, how much of the proprietary tech that the care delivery models have developed and drives so much of the values is actually that unique? So are we just finally seeing the force from the trees or is this really that unique? I think it's more that it's trying to take more of a platform approach as opposed to trying to solve one particular issue at a time. You know, and it's kind of not too dissimilar from what we do at Carrion because it's, you know, we create a platform that is not tied to one specific use case, but has a very solid core that can be built upon to serve many different instances. So it's kind of going to that point that you're making of trying to create a, you know, a more flexible approach that actually fits into the workflows and fits into the use cases that are sought out by the care delivery organizations. You know, so I think one of the issues was that you had these designs that maybe didn't have the feedback or the input from the people who are actually going to be utilizing them. That being both care team members, so clinicians, various forms of clinicians, folks within the systems, but also the patients, because a lot of these systems now require patient interface and engagement. And if you're not incorporating a patient view into it, you're still missing a primary user of whatever technology you're going to be developing. 
I'm sure there's still going to be proprietary elements to it, but I think the key is you're trying to find pieces that can fit together and that you can use as a foundation and keep building up from, as opposed to trying to say, this is the single solitary solution that's going to do everything for you. It's you know recognizing that you should just be a part of a bigger whole and enabling that as opposed to inhibiting those connections or in some cases, prohibiting those types of mm-hmm. connections. You know, I think any company that thinks it's going to be the only thing that's used for every issue that's going to be faced with an or- in an organization is not going to be able to do all those things very well. I think you can find your niche within it, or as I said, be that foundation that everyone builds up from. Mm-hmm. But again, if you're being that foundation, you want to be very considerate, I think, in how you're building it and also making sure that you're being a productive and proactive and helpful member of the community. So it's, you know, trying to foster all different types of relationships. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see what Zeus does. You know, I I feel like I'd heard in the background, it was the baseline was going to be more of like a virtual or telehealth focused medical record, which theoretically could be that, you know, that broad base that everything gets built off of because it's, you know, if you have that as a starting point, other components do need to be connected into it and you want to have all the data from different sources flowing into one unified place, I think. I think ultimately the issue is trying to drive, again, that collaboration and coordination as opposed to trying to say that any one piece is the only component that should be there. Do you think everyone involved is going to think that way or is there going to be a land grab reaction? That will remain to be seen. The regulations and the industry mood is going in a direction of we want people playing together. Uh, you know, So I'm hopeful that it will be in that direction. I've seen positive steps in that direction just through what we're doing at Carium. Because what we've found is we've, we have had good success in instances of being the, the tech platform that has helped other companies get out to market more quickly. Because we could say, if you're looking to do this type of care delivery, or this type, type of use case, instead of building something specific to you, we surprise people of saying, hey, th- if you're looking to do this type of evidence basis or this type of intervention, we're, we already have all the tools you need. You just need to plug in your specific mode of engagement into it because it fits within our platform. So I do think that there are ways to get people working together. And I think there is a lot of appetite for it. And I think if you have that foundational analogy, I think if you have that in place, that is what people are looking for. There, you know, it's kind of the platform has become one of those buzzwords over the past few months. And I think it goes back to that feeling of we need to be collaborating, working together. So, you know, I, I am cautiously optimistic that there isn't going to be a, a, a land grab, or if people do try to do the land grab, they're going to find an increasingly shrinking amount of land that they can be latching onto. That's a very positive note to end on here, Matt. So let's hope that people look upon all of this, the technology being delivered out there and developed as competitive and uh, for the general healthcare ecosystem. And maybe they'll consider the patient at the center of care, which that kind of perspective I think helps as well. Thank you so much. Always love to talk with you, Matt. Take care and safe travels to Vegas. Thank you very much. And we'll always be happy to come back whenever you want. Our thanks to Matt Fisher for joining us on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing series, which is on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time. 
Be well.